This is Precepts Audio Message PA503. Nathan C. Johnson, Bible Teacher. For all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in truth. Book of Psalms 74. And this psalm clearly records the desecration of the temple. Like I said, this is the book of the sanctuary, and here we have the sanctuary desecrated. The temple is desecrated, and the land is oppressed by a foreign invader. But which event of this kind is it talking about? And that's debated. Now, there are some who confidently will point to the time of the Maccabees, about 150 B.C., when Antiochus IV Epiphanes of Syria defiled the temple. But it's very unlikely that any psalm written so late made it into the canon of Scripture and would have also been included in the Septuagint, which was translated that same century. I mean, when they put a brand new psalm in? It seems unlikely. Now, those who try to point to this very late date for the psalm point to the use of synagogues, the word named synagogues in verse 8. Say they didn't exist till the 2nd century B.C. But this seems a doubtful translation of the Hebrew word meeting places here. Now this seems doubtful, particularly when the Septuagint Greek version reads here, and they have caused to cease all the festivals of God in the land, eliminating any reference to synagogues. Now, since when the Septuagint was being translated, synagogues are very important in the life of Israel, it seems very doubtful that the Septuagint translators would have eliminated it if they really believed that's what this verse was talking about. Now, Bollinger, on his note, says that the rendering synagogues here comes from the Septuagint. But as far as I could tell when I looked at the Septuagint, that's wrong. The Septuagint doesn't say synagogues, it says the festivals. So I'm not sure what was going on with Bullinger's note there, but I, at least my step two again agrees with what Rotherham says, not with what Bullinger says. Well, I, I really don't think this is referring to the time of the Maccabees. Well, could it refer, therefore, to the destruction of the temple by Babylon? Well, this seems doubtful as well because Jeremiah was the prophet in the land and Ezekiel was the prophet in Babylon. And they were both giving God's words. And yet, in verse 9, it says, There is no more any prophet, neither is there any among us that knoweth how long. And, of course, among one of the things that Jeremiah did is he prophesied the length of the captivity. And for that matter, so did Ezekiel. Well, some suggest that it's later in the exile than right at the point of them going into captivity. And they base that on verse 3. Lift up thy feet unto the perpetual desolations. However, that doesn't seem to fit the end of verse 6, which seems to indicate that as the psalmist is writing this, the foreign invaders are in the process of desecrating the temple and breaking down its carved works. He's actually writing as this is going on. So that one seemed to fit late in their, or long after the captivity. Well, as far as I'm concerned, it, it seems to me that the best suggestion is the one Rotherham makes, and it wasn't unique with him. He says he got it from the speaker's commentary. And his idea was that this psalm was written at the occasion of the invasion of Israel by the Egyptian monarch, Shishak, in the days of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. And the points he gives for this idea are, number one, the psalmist seems to carefully describe a desecration of the temple, not a destruction of the temple, which would lead to us not thinking it's Babylon. Number two, the language of verses 5 and 6 seems to fit a time when the building of the temple was fairly recent. Well, if, they, if Rotherham and the speaker's commentary are correct, then this psalm was written on the occasion of the very first desecration of the temple that ever occurred. And from there, it 
stretches out as typical of all desecrations that would follow Babylon's and all the others, including, of course, the final one at the instigation of the man of sin during the tribulation period. I tend to think that Rotherham's right, and this is actually written in the days of Rehoboam in that very first desecration of the temple. Now it's masculine, which I believe means instruction. And it's the ninth of 13 Psalms so designated, and the first of four in the third book of Psalms. It seems appropriate when we follow the previous psalm that gives the perspective of meeting God in the sanctuary and therefore getting the right perspective on the wicked, that we would then proceed to the disturbing fact that while the righteous enter God's sanctuary and meet with God, God's enemies sometimes force their way into the sanctuary and desecrate it and get away with it. Why are they allowed to do this? Why would God let his enemies into his temple and let them do outrages against it? And how long will God put up with it? That's the question of this psalm. Now it's a psalm of Asaph. And this is probably not David's Asaph, but a descendant of his. And these Asaph psalms seem to be from the family of Asaph, not necessarily from the original Asaph. This is the third of the twelve Asaph Psalms, and the second Asaph Psalm in the in the third book of Psalms. Verse one. O God, why hast thou cast us off forever? Why doth thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? So the psalmist writes and asks God why he has cast them off forever. Cast them off would have the idea of forcefully reject. And forever would be for so long. This is not the Hebrew word olam, but this is netzach, which indicates a, a great length. Like I said, for so long. Why have you forcefully rejected us for so long? Why doth an anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? And the anger here is literally nose smoke. Probably from the dragon who, as Job says, smoke comes out his nose and became a symbol for anger. Why is your nose smoke against the sheep of your pasture or of your shepherding? Of course, this is referring to Israel, who are always in scripture, the sheep. So his anger is smoking against them. And he says, verse 2, Remember thy congregation which thou hast purchased of old, the rod of thine inheritance, which thou hast redeemed, this Mount Zion, wherein thou hast dwelt. So he calls upon him to remember, and of course that means to call to mind and to act on it. We think of remember as just meaning remembering something you forgot, but they would use it for meaning calling to mind, thinking about it and acting on it. The congregation here is the Adah, the gathering or the assembled meeting. Remember the assembly, which thou hast purchased of old, or acquired them as a possession. And of course, this is what the Lord did when he brought his people out of Egypt, is that he acquired them for himself. Exodus 15 and verse 16 says, this was the song of triumph after the defeat of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. Fear and dread shall fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm they shall be as still as a stone. Till thy people pass over, O Lord. Till the people pass over which thou hast purchased. And of course, God, the Lord claims that he purchased Israel for himself when he saved them from the slavery in Egypt. Now he has purchased them of old. And of course, more than half a millennium had passed since Israel left Egypt. This is indeed the days of Rehoboam. So long ago he had purchased them. Then he says, The rod of thine inheritance, or the scepter of thine inheritance, which thou hast redeemed. And redeemed here is Gaal, 
That's the word that is used for the kinsman redeemer, which we have a great illustration of that in the book of Ruth, Boaz being the kinsman redeemer, and of course symbolizing the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our kinsman redeemer. And this same word redeem is used of Israel out of Egypt. For example, Exodus 6 and verse 6. Wherefore say unto the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you, Gaal, I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And then in the same triumph song in Exodus 13, we talked about a minute ago, Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Got all again. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thine holy habitation. So these are the people whom God has redeemed. And he says, Remember them. Then this Mount Zion wherein thou hast dwelt. He says, Remember Mount Zion. Of course, this is where the temple was, the city of David, Mount Zion. And the temple was permanently built there on Zion. So he says, remember it. Verse 3, Lift up thy feet unto the perpetual desolations, even all that the enemy hath done wickedly in the sanctuary. And lift up there, of course, could mean exalt. And feet there, is actually the Hebrew word means beats, and you can think of that as footsteps. Of course, nowadays we have these watches that, that count your footsteps, and the way they count it is by beats. And because, of course, every time you put your foot down, there's a beat. So, exalt your beats, your footsteps, onto the perpetual. That is netzach again, as in verse 1. For so long, the lengthy desolations, it says. Now, Rotherham quotes Briggs as saying the same consonants, and remember that Hebrew was originally written with consonants only, no vowels. And only after Hebrew had stopped being spoken and it was being forgotten did the rabbis realize it was being forgotten, and they came up with the vowel points, the little marks, punctuation marks that they would put to indicate what the vowels were. But the thing was, some things were already being forgotten, and once in a while they didn't maybe quite put the right vowels on. And Briggs points out that with the same consonants but different vowel points, this would read, which thy footsteps exalted to perpetual dignity. So this would make this ending what was said in the previous verse. This Mount Zion, wherein thou hast dwelt, which thy footsteps exalted to perpetual dignity. And then that would end the first stanza, calling on God not to cast them off by ending with the great and exalted temple, which he had exalted by his footsteps. And of course we would consider when the Lord Jesus Christ himself entered the temple and exalted it by his footsteps. Even all that the enemy hath done wickedly in the sanctuary. So we have contrasted with this great congregation which he purchased of old, this rod of his inheritance which he redeemed, Mount Zion, where he dwelt and exalted with his footsteps. Now, everything has the enemy brought to calamity in the sanctuary. Everything that was so glorious and so honoring to God has been brought to calamity by the enemy. Now, sanctuary here is not the same word as in Psalm 73, the mikdash, the sacred place, but in this case, it is Kodesh, the holy place. So the enemy have done wicked things in the very holy place itself. And again, this is God's sanctuary. How could God allow the wicked to even enter his holy place, not to mention do outrageous things there? Verse 4, Thine enemies roar in the midst of thy congregations. They set up their ensigns for signs. And thine enemies here are the adversaries. It could mean vexers or harassers. Of course, that's what they're doing. They roar in the midst of thy congregations or appointed meetings or appointed meeting places. So in the place where Israel was supposed to meet for their feasts, and of course that's Jerusalem. 
That's the capital city, and that's the temple. And here they are roaring, they're shouting to each other and having a good time as they're looting the place. And so he describes their calls and their shouts. Their shouts of glee, no doubt, as they're finding all the wealth that Solomon had stored up there, ready for the plundering. He describes it as they're roaring in the middle of his appointed meeting places. He says they set up their ensigns for signs. And really it's the same word repeated twice. They set up their signs as signs. In other words, for us to obey. And you think of these enemies taking over. And they can put up their signs and say, you can go here, you can't go there. You know, we're looting the temple, stay out, whatever. They set up their signs as signs for Israel, where only Israel's signs ought to be, where only Israel's rules ought to hold sway. They've set up their signs and set up their order over it. Then we have verse 5. A man was famous according as he had lifted up axes upon the thick trees. Now one who was known, and of course one who is widely known as famous, he was known according as he had lifted up axes upon the thick trees. Now what would why would a man be famous for having been a lumberjack? Well, this probably refers to those who cut down trees for the building of the temple. That's what Rotherham suggests. And it made sense. Of course, those who were involved in this work were famous or known. We can imagine in the days, maybe around 40 years or four decades after the building of the temple, at least after its start, an older man bringing his young children to the temple or his grandchildren and telling them, I helped build that. I cut down some of the trees that were used in putting up those great doors and putting up that marvelous building. Well, that would have been a great privilege and an honor for all who had been involved in the building of that temple. And so a man was famous, according as he had lifted up axes upon the thick trees. He says, but now they break down the carved work thereof at once with axes and hammers. So here these enemies are ha hammering the carved work of the doors with hatchets and hammers. And of course, the reason they're doing that is this wood in the temple was all overlaid with gold, with precious metal. And they don't care so much about the wood, although it was fine wood. They want the, they want the gold. They want the precious metal. So there they are with their hammers and hatchets, taking off all the metal off the doors that had been so carefully put on them some 40 years before. Now again, if Rotherham is correct, and this is during the fifth year of Rehoboam, Solomon's son, then many of those who built the temple were still alive when it was desecrated. And those who remembered cutting down the wood to build the temple now see the foreign invaders removing the gold from the doors. And for this we could see 2 Chronicles 12 and verse 9. So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took all. He carried away also the shields of gold which Solomon had made. So again, all this wealth that Solomon had acquired, all this wealth that David had acquired for the building of the temple and the honoring of the temple during his many conquests, and Solomon had brought much more wealth into Israel, well, Shishak, king of Egypt, came in, took it all away for himself, enriched Egypt, and impoverished Israel. And this is all, of course, because Israel and Judah, with Rehoboam, had forsaken the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. In Second Chronicles 12 and verse 1. So the foreign invaders came in, and they removed the wealth from the temple. And it seems they even lifted up their hatchets and hammers, on the card work of the temple to remove all the overlaid gold. And again, the psalmist seems to be writing as they're doing this. He says, but now, even as he's writing, they're in the temple desecrating it and hammering off all the gold for themselves. Verse 7, They have cast fire into thy sanctuary, 
They have defiled by casting down the dwelling place of thy name to the ground. So they have cast fire into thy sanctuary. Now this time it is mikdash. Same word as in Psalm 73. Which is into your sacred place. Into your sanctuary. Now this fire is for melting down the precious metal of the holy articles. So here they are in, in God's sanctuary itself. Uh, lighting a fire to melt down his, his precious holy things. Why are they allowed to melt down God's holy things and steal them for themselves? Well, again, if we go to Second Chronicles 12, it's because Israel had forsaken the Lord. So they have defiled by casting down the dwelling place of thy name to the ground. Now the dwelling place is the tabernacle. And of course, while the tabernacle, we think of that generally as meaning the movable tent that was replaced by the permanent building as God's current and final place of his tabernacle. Remember, a tabernacle symbolizes the center of operations. And the temple was to be the center of God's operations on earth. And in here they are defiling that tabernacle, the dwelling place of thy name to the ground. Now, God's name has to do with his reputation. His reputation, his true reputation having to do with his true character. By, by defiling the temple that had God's reputation on it, they have trampled his reputation to the ground. And of course, this is puzzling. Why would he allow this? Verse 8, They said in their hearts, Let us destroy them together. They have burned up all the synagogues of God in the land. So this is what the enemy said in their hearts. They said, let us destroy them or let us oppress or suppress them together. And then here we have where they have burned up all the synagogues of God in the land. Well, that is really a creative rendering because this is really the same word as in verse 4. Thine enemies roar in the midst of thy congregations. And, or your meeting places. So to make this synagogues doesn't really fit. Now, Bollinger's note claims this rendering is from the Septuagint, but the Septuagint text I have access to does not say synagogues, it says festivals. And again, as Rotherham pointed out, if this was a later psalm written at the time of the Maccabees, and the idea of the Hebrew was synagogues, why would the Septuagint, which was translated at the time synagogues were already so important to Jewish society, have suppressed that fact by translating it away? And the reality is the Septuagint is probably right. That this means they have caused to cease all the yearly festivals of God in the land. And not that they burned up synagogues, which didn't at that time exist. Verse 9, We see not our signs. There is no more any prophet. Neither is there among us any that knoweth how long. So we see not our signs. And remember, their signs have been replaced by the enemy's signs. We already saw that in verse 4. The enemy sets up their own signs for signs. The signs of God's presence and power were gone. Remember just some 40 years before, actually not a whole lot more than 30 years before, when the temple was finally completed, that God's glory had come down and entered the temple and the priest couldn't even go into the temple to minister because God's glory was in it. And yet here, the sign of God's power was gone, replaced by the signs of the enemy's presence and power. And what a sad exchange that was. He says, there is no more any prophet. What does this mean? Well, if we turn to Second Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 5, Actually, let's read, let's read this chapter starting from the beginning, 12.1. And it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. And it came to pass that in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak king of Egypt came up against Jerusalem because they had transgressed against the Lord. With 1,200 chariots and threescore thousand, that would be 60,000 horsemen, 
and the people were without number that came with him out of Egypt, the Lubims, the Sukims, and the Ethiopians. And again, this massive fortune that Solomon had accumulated was a huge attraction to any enemy invaders. If you wanted to sack and loot somebody, there is no more ripe fruit, no more prime target you could have had at this time than Israel. So the king of Egypt has no problem getting other nations willing to come with him and share in the loot. And he took the fenced cities which pertained to Judah and came to Jerusalem. Then came Shemaiah the prophet to Rehoboam and to the princes of Judah that were gathered together to Jerusalem because of Shishak, and said unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Ye have forsaken me, and therefore have I also left you in the hand of Shishak. So here is the word from Shemaiah the prophet. You have forsaken me, therefore I have left you in the hands of Shishak. And that's the end of it. So we can't say there was literally no prophet in the land. The prophet had basically abandoned them to their fate. Bullinger says this is put for prophetic utterances. Not that there are no prophets there, but there are no words from the prophet. And we would agree with that. The last utterance they got left them to their fate. Now we do see in verse 6, Whereupon the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves, and they said, The Lord is righteous. And when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, saying, They have humbled themselves, therefore I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. And my wrath shall not be poured out upon Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they shall be his servants, that they may know my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. In other words, so that they might know the difference, that they might know the contrast. The difference between serving the Lord and serving a foreign invader. Now this word came to Shemaiah, but notice it seems to be a private word to Shemaiah, not a word to the whole nation. And the last word that they heard was just, I've left you in the hand of Shishak. You left me, I've left you. So this would be, there is no word. So he says, we see not our signs. There is no more any prophet. Shemaiah told that to them and then left them there. Neither is there any among us that knoweth how long. Now the word here for how long is the word odd, the word for longest duration. No one knows the longest duration of this oppression, just how long it will last. How could one know when the only word they got was, I'm leaving you in Shishak's hands? But again, if this was the destruction of Babylon, Jeremiah spelled out just how long the desolation of Jerusalem would be from the Babylonians. So this doesn't fit with that. So again, I think it fits with Shishak and the very first desolation of the temple, soon after it was built. So there's none among them who knows how long. They don't know how long until God will do anything about this. Verse 10, O God, how long shall the adversary reproach? Shall the enemy blaspheme thy name forever? So they ask God how long the adversary will reproach or will taunt. And of course, when you have come in and conquered foreign people and completely subjugated them, well, of course, it's quite easy to mock them for their helplessness. They thought they were so great, and now they're helpless before you. Well, there's probably a lot of mockery going on. And then he says, Shall the enemy blaspheme thy name forever? Well, remember that pagan peoples always considered a battle to be, in part, a contest between gods. And if you won a battle over another people, you would say your gods had won a battle over their gods. Now, they weren't out looking for which god is the strongest and then will serve him. They, they viewed their gods almost like their mascots. Their gods were on their side. In fact, it, I, I've read some suggestion that the gods started out being your ancestors. You would worship your ancestors, your dead ancestors, and think they would help you. So they're your gods. You don't even necessarily consider looking for other gods. They're yours. Just like when you're loyal to a sports team. You, you say, we're number one, and then your team loses. You don't realize, oh, I was wrong. They're not number one. Okay, time to root for the other team since they're number one. No, you don't do that. You root for your team, win or lose, and they would root for their gods, win or lose. But they always considered a, a, a battle, a contest between the gods. So since they've defeated Israel, 
they would consider it that their gods had defeated Israel's God. So part of their mocking of Israel would be to tell them that the gods of Egypt were clearly stronger than Jehovah their God. Well, that was, that was certainly blaspheming Jehovah's name. And so he asks, Shall the enemy blaspheme thy name forever? Forever here is Netzach, again, unendingly. For how long? For some long time, perpetually. Well, they just keep on doing it. Who knows how long? And you won't do anything about it. You'll let them do it. Verse 11, Why withdrawest thou thy hand, even thy right hand? Pluck it out of thy bosom. So God, his hand, which of course is the source of his power and skill, he seems to have withdrawn it. He's not acting with it. He's not using it to defend Israel. He's not using it to defend his temple. And so he says, pluck it out of thy bosom. Bosom appears twice here. You might say, pluck it out of bosoming in your bosom. Don't keep it hanging out, tucked inside your, your shirt is kind of the idea. Don't just keep it tucked inside your shirt. Pull it out. Use it. Bollinger says that the Septuagint adds a sila here, whereas it's not there in the Hebrew. He says if, if it should be here, it would connect with the, this petition, God going to action, pluck your hand out of your bosom. It would connect this with the grounds for calling on God to do it, which is in the following verses. Verse 12, For God is my king of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. So this would be not just Asaph, but the whole nation speaking, that God is my king of old. And of course, he had been the king of Israel since he led them out of Egypt. And indeed, you could argue that he was the king of Israel all the way back to the days of Abraham. And the idea of a human king was a relatively modern innovation for Israel at the time of Rehoboam. He was only, of course, the fourth king. There were the three over the whole nation, and he was the fourth over Judah. For God is my king of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Rotherham has victories, which of course would save a nation from just the kind of faith that, faith that they were experiencing at this point. So working salvation in the midst of the earth. Or the, this is the Hebrew Eretz, which again is always a judgment call whether it means earth or land. And God had worked salvation or victories in the midst of the land many times. Verse 13, Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. So the fact that he divided the sea by his strength is doubtless a reference back to when Israel passed through the Red Sea on their way out of Egypt. And then thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. And the heads here is plural, but so is the dragons, so it's not talking about a multi-headed creature. The heads of the dragons. Now the dragons here are the tanin, which we've talked about before. And the Bible uses this for several monstrous creatures. It uses it for poisonous snakes. It uses it for sea monsters. Uh, sea serpents, question mark, if there is such a thing. Or was, if there aren't any more. Of course, whales are uh, kind of a sea monster and so forth. And then it also seems to use them for what we call dinosaurs, and, and the old name for it was dragons. And the Leviathan is a tanin, the fire-breathing type of dinosaur. So thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. Then verse 14, thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in pieces, and gavest him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. And the Leviathan is the fire-breathing dragon as described in Job 41. Some have suggested that the Leviathan was the symbol for Egypt and Pharaoh, probably due to Leviathan living in the Nile. And so this is probably referring to the destruction of Pharaoh and his forces in the Red Sea. And that would make sense. Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength, thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. Well, if that was the 
army of Egypt being broken in the waters. Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in pieces, and gavest them to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. And the people there could also be the creatures inhabiting the wilderness. And this would then refer to the dead bodies of Pharaoh and his army, as we know, cast up on the shores of the Red Sea after their drowning. It so often happens to drowning victims. Some, of course, would be lost in the sea, but when you had this many drawn at once, many of them would be cast up on shore, and then it would become food for the scavenging creatures of the wilderness. So God had done this, given them this great victory over all the forces of Egypt, and how appropriate that would be if, if, if it was the forces of Egypt who are now oppressing them. Verse 15, Thou didst cleave the fountain and the flood. Thou driedst up mighty rivers. And I can't help but be glad that that ST ending has gone out of English because try to say dryedst. It's not easy. But anyway, thou didst cleave the fountain and the flood. And to cleave there means to open a passage. Bullinger identifies this with the Lord's care for them in the wilderness. And the rock, which broke open and water came gushing out, flowing out of it, and that water is what they drank in the wilderness. So thou didst cleave the fountain and the flood, he thinks, refers to that water from the rock. Then thou driedst up mighty rivers. And of course we realize that the sequel to the parting of the Red Sea was the parting of the Jordan River, as the Lord brought them into the Promised Land under Joshua nearly 40 years later. And we would see Joshua 3 for that story, where he parted the river, and they crossed the river on dry land again. Even if you stopped the water flowing like with the dam, how long would it take for the riverbed to dry out from all the mud? Days and days. But they walked over it immediately on dry ground. The Lord didn't just stop the water. He also dried the ground instantly. And they walked over it. So this was how the Lord brought them through his mighty power into the promised land. He dried up the mighty Jordan in, the, in its flood stage. And verse 16, the day is thine, the night also is thine. Thou hast prepared the light and the sun. So he seems to go even beyond the great deliverance in the book of Exodus and go all the way back to Genesis. The fact that he created the light and the darkness. He created the day and the night in the beginning on day one of creation. So the day and the night both belong to him. Then thou hast prepared the light and the sun. Or that means established or fixed. And the word light there is the same word that's used for lights in the firmament on day four of creation. When he put lights in the firmament of the heavens. However, Bollinger points out that the, in the Septuagint Greek version, the Syriac Aramaic version, and the Latin Vulgate version of the Psalms here all have moon instead of light. Thus prepared the moon and the sun. Verse 17, Thou hast set all the borders of the earth. Thou hast made summer and winter. So he has set all the borders of the earth. That's the Eretz, which could also be the land. We know that on day three, the Lord gathered all the waters together and caused the dry land to appear. And so then he set all the borders of the land. Yeah, we also recognize that when he brought Israel into the land, after crossing the Jordan, he set the boundaries of the land and of the tribes, as we read about it in Joshua. So it could be a reference to either one. But if it is in the context in this stanza of Genesis, it would make more sense that it would be the day three dry land. Then he says, Thou hast made summer and winter. Now he did, but these aren't said to be established at creation. They're first mentioned after the flood. And Genesis 8.22 mentions summer and winter for the first time. We don't know what the climate was like before the flood or if there was such a thing as summer and winter. But in Genesis 8.22 after the flood, he says, Well, the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. So the idyllic Conditions of the original creation may not have included a summer and winter. 
But in Genesis 8.22, they're equated with cold and heat and with seed time and harvest. And God made both of these, summer and winter, seed time and harvest, cold and heat. So this is the great God, their king of old, working these great deliverances, divided the Red Sea and broke the power of Egypt in the sea, who gave them the water from the rock in the wilderness, parted the Jordan and brought them into the land, very same God who created in the beginning. And yet now his hand is planted in his bosom. We talked today about sitting on the hands, but here it's like the, his hands are, are clasped against his chest, against his breast, and he's not moving them. So he says, verse 18, Remember this, that the enemy hath reproached, O Lord, and that the foolish people have blasphemed thy name. So the appeal of verse 11 for God to go into action, has been justified by reviewing, reviewing God's power and authority in history and in creation in verses 12 through 17. So this God certainly has more than sufficient power to stop all outrages against his sanctuary. Yet startlingly, he has not done so. So he calls on God to remember that the enemy have reproached, O Lord. Remember what they're saying, how they're claiming that their gods are more powerful than you are. And here that's clearly not the case. And remember that the foolish people have blasphemed thy name. Now foolish here is Nabal. Just like Abigail's husband, his name was Fool. But the idea of the fool is as much of a morally deficient person as a mentally deficient one. So these foolish people have blasphemed his name, again his reputation. And they were saying that the God who built this glorious temple couldn't even defend it from desecration one generation later. So thus his great reputation was held in contempt. Well, that tends to always happen when God stoops to identify himself with anything on this fallen earth. Because he identifies himself with it and then it lets him down. Yeah, whether it's human beings like David, he identifies himself with him and then David causes his enemies to blaspheme by his ungodly conduct. Or in this case, he identifies himself with a building, and then through Israel's unfaithfulness, God abandons them and that building is desecrated. God's reputation suffers when he identifies himself with anyone or anything on this fallen earth. But foolish people blasphemed his name through what was going on here. Verse 19, O deliver not the soul of thy turtle dove unto the multitude of the wicked. Forget not the congregation of thy poor forever. So he calls him not to deliver the soul of his turtle dove. Soul there is nephesh, as it always is. And here it refers to the person, or perhaps to his, his comfortable life, his, his future. He calls him your turtle dove or your dove. It's an interesting name for a singer. God's singer is God's turtle dove. He says, don't deliver him to the multitude of the wicked. Well, there's no of the wicked here. And the word multitude, interestingly, is the word che, which is the word for life or alive. A che nefesh is a living soul. So don't deliver your turtle dove onto the living. Well, the idea here is the living host that was now living among them and ruling over them. So we might say it's the living host. Forget not the congregation of thy poor forever. And forget here, of course, means to ignore. Now, congregation here is again chay. So, don't deliver me to this living host. Forget not the living host of your poor. Forever. Netzach. For so long. For some long unspecified time. Don't go on forgetting your living host. Of your poor, you're afflicted. You're wretched in the face of these invaders. Verse 20, Have respect unto the covenant, for the dark places of the earth are full of the habitations of cruelty. So for him to have respect unto the covenant, of course, would be the opposite of him forgetting or ignoring it. And the covenant remi reminds us that he had cut a covenant with this people, with Israel. These were the people of his covenant. And yet by letting them be so treated and so cast down and oppressed, he was forgetting that covenant. 
Well, remember what we saw in Second Chronicles, that he was forgetting them because they had forgotten him. But he says, now remember that covenant. And he says, for the dark places of the earth are full of the habitations of cruelty. And these dark places, the places in darkness, the secret places, we might say. And the earth here, well, again, this is Eretz. And the concern here is with the land which was being invaded. So I would say that it would make a lot more sense to translate it land here. The dark places of the land are full of the habitations of cruelty. And that's how it always is when a land is taken over by an invading army. And that is that the helpless people are subject to the cruel whims of their new overlords. And there's really no protection from rape and pillage. So the land is going to be full of the dark places of the land are going to be full of the habitations of cruelty as long as an enemy invader has complete control over it. Verse 21, O let not the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise thy name. So don't let the oppressed return ashamed. And the idea is that they have come to the Lord God for help. So he says, don't let them go back ashamed without the help he sought. And he says, let the poor and needy praise thy name. That means, of course, give them cause for praising your name because of the, of the deliverance he would give. Verse 22, Arise, O God, plead thine own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproacheth thee daily. So arise here means to go into action. And I think here, this last stanza of this psalm applies not to the, just that desecration of the temple, nor even just every desecration after that, but this is the prayer of every man of God down through the ages who has longed and prayed for God to go into action and bring in his kingdom. So I believe that the prayer here, while certainly it would be appropriate to that situation, applies ultimately to the prayer to bring for God to bring in his government to the earth. So he says, Arise, go into action, O God, plead thine own cause. And the idea of plead there is as like pleading your case in court. Now those of us who seek to plead for God in this, the day of his silence, and we seek to plead for him against those who speak against him, well, we long for the day when he will help our stammering lips and plead his own cause as only he can, and as we certainly cannot. So go into action, O God, and plead thine own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproacheth thee daily. Foolish, again, is Nabal, the morally deficient as well as the mentally de deficient. And they were scorning him daily. And indeed, we see the morally deficient doing this constantly today, scorning God. And we long for God to plead his own cause against them. Verse 23, Forget not the voice of thine enemies. The tumult of those that rise up against thee increaseth continually. So he says, Forget not the voice of thine enemies. Now earlier he called on God not to forget his living poor. Now he calls on God not to forget the mocking voices of his enemies. Now I believe in the prayer prophecy principle, which is every prayer given by divine inspiration in Scripture becomes a prophecy of what, asking God to do something becomes a prophecy of what God is going to do. And God is not going to forget the voice of his enemies. Now mockers have a tendency to think that they get away with it. They mock God. Nothing happens immediately, so they think, aha, I got away with it. As God says in Psalm 50, 21, These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. But I will reprove thee, and set them in order before thine eyes. So people mock God, and when he doesn't do anything about it, they think that he's like them, that either he's limited in knowledge or he's limited in power. He can't do anything about it. Yet this is not true. He is not like them, and he does not forget. So forget not the voice of thine enemies, the tumult, the clamor, the noise of those that rise up against thee. And this is the same word as arise, those who go into action against thee. So they don't just think against him, they don't just talk against him, they act. 
So the chaos, the clamor of those who are rising up in action against thee increaseth continually. And continually there is tamid, indicating that which is stretched out or constant. It's constantly increasing the tumult against God. So he calls upon him to go into action and plead his own cause. And we could imagine the noise in the temple as these looters went through the temple and discovered more and more wealth and their clamor increased, their celebration as they looted. But at the same time, like I said, we could apply this to today where the clamor of those who rise up against God seems to increase more and more and more. And we need God to go into action and plead his own cause. We need his kingdom. So this psalm is to the chief musician. And so it's for public consideration since, of course, the sanctuary of Jehovah is desecrated publicly. And all have to consider this conundrum and why such a thing is allowed. Why does God allow the outrages of the wicked? And then this is all tashkith, which means do not destroy. Now people have scratched their heads over the meaning of this, do not destroy, and indeed it's an insoluble puzzle when this word is attached to the wrong psalm. And if you look at the wrong psalm and say, this psalm has nothing to do with do not destroy, well, yeah, it probably doesn't, because that's not the psalm the word belongs to. Uh, this psalm makes perfect sense when attached to Psalm 74. This whole psalm is about do not destroy, and God's sanctuary should not be destroyed. This is the fourth and the last of the do not destroy psalms, everyone being in the postscript of the psalm and everyone being wrongly applied to the prescript in the next psalm, which is why a lot of people today have uselessly decided maybe this was some tune, and they'd sing this, these four psalms to that same tune. No, it's not a tune. It's what the psalm was about. This is the fourth and last and the only one not in the second Exodus book. The previous three El Teshitz are all in the Exodus book, and this is the only one outside of it in the Leviticus book. Uh, El Tashkith in Psalm 56, and that was the psalm, remember, about David, a prisoner in Philistia. It ends Psalm 57, where David was hiding from Saul's search party in the cave, and his enemies were closing in. And of course, then Saul came into that very cave to relieve himself. It ends Psalm 58, where David is speaking to the rulers and as a nation and putting them on notice. But he's not going to tolerate their unjust rule any longer. Those who would seek to destroy what's just and right in the land, he's not going to tolerate it. And here is just as appropriate. The enemies are threatening to destroy and desecrate God's temple, and so it says, do not destroy. So that is certainly what God would write over his temple. And while God allows enemy invaders to desecrate his temple, he does not forget when they do so. And we know that the nations like Assyria and like Babylon who did so were later punished for having done it. Well, that's Psalm 74. But we're out of time for today, and we'll have to take up from there in our next study.